Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name's Neil Selwyn, and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Mark Warshower, one of the world's leading researchers in the area of education and technology. Over the past 30 years, Mark has dedicated himself to exploring how digital technology intersects with language learning. He's also well known for his work on social inclusion and digital learning all around the world. So Mark is an ideal person to talk to about the ever-growing hype around digital education. In this conversation, we talk about how the links between technology and learning are never straightforward. We also talk about Mark's recent work on conversational agents, as well as his role as one of the founding editors of the journal AERA Open. But I started off with a personal question. Given that we can choose to research just about any aspect of education, what was it about digital technology that's kept Mark's attention for such a long time? I think what I love about digital learning is how it's always changing. Uh, I'm a pretty intuitive person and I'm a person who likes to do lots of different things. And uh, I like the fact that uh, the digital learning landscape is always changing. I like staying on top of things. I like trying to figure out where it's going, what's new, what's interesting, what's not going anywhere. and. Uh, you know, it fits my personality well, and I think it keeps me young, and it's certainly never boring. So I've really enjoyed it. I find that as well. It's the biggest secret of digital learning research is that you can actually research any topic you like. I know. If I was stuck, like, you know, studying, like, uh, you know, a series of poems by Shakespeare from several hundred years ago and digging deeper and deeper for my whole life, uh, I think I'd die. <laughs> but also the fact it's always changing means there's always a kind of continuous hype cycle as well and I'm really interested looking back to when you first started what was the hype around technology and learning in the 1990s and, and how have those initial kind of hopes and hypes played out over the past 30 years I think the hype has been pretty consistent which is technology is a game changer once you bring in technology everything you knew about language, about children, about society, about learning gets thrown out because, you know, technology is the magic bullet, the silver bullet, as it were. Put those computers in and stand back and, and watch the game change. You know, it, it, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, I, just to share some of my experiences over the years. You know, one of my first experiences uh, when I was at University of Hawaii, I was uh, actually, you know, writing some kind of edited books, collecting some experiences of what people were doing. And I met some uh, university French teachers from Stanford. And uh, they told me that, you know, digital media creation was just a game changer. It was just transforming how they were teaching French. And I went and observed their classroom and I saw a first semester French class. And yes, students were sitting around excitedly, like developing a presentation. Uh, it wasn't PowerPoint, it was before PowerPoint, but whatever software they were using, you know, this was a big thing to be able to actually create a multimedia presentation. But the fact is, most of the time, they were figuring out how to use the software and talking to each other in English. 
you know, so they were, you know, spending several hours talking to each other in English uh, to create a software that, you know, maybe had two sentences of French in it. Instead of what people should be doing in a first semester French class, which is really immersion in listening to it, starting to use it, develop a lot of communication skills. So the programming itself became more salient than the language learning. And, and I think that that's a, a big problem with kind of the game changing, you know, phenomenon. What exactly are you changing about the game? And I guess a lot of this hype also relates to the idea of kind of social inclusion or social equality or kind of widening opportunities. And, uh, and you've done a lot of research around that area as well. I mean, can you tell us about some of those projects? Uh, later on, uh, you may be aware I did a small research project on the hole in the wall in India, which was supposed to be minimally invasive education where they put computers in the wall and these poor slum kids were supposed to come up and teach themselves from it. And they wrote lots of papers on it and got lots of money and awards. And, and when I went there, you know, the computers were broke down, the internet wasn't working, the ones that were working was dominated by a few boys playing really simplistic games. I mean, not the kind of games that you learn anything from. And uh, I interviewed the parents who were complaining that their kids stopped doing their schoolwork because they were just playing game there after school. And it's kind of on and on. And uh, of course, later I did work on the One Laptop Per Child program, which was a lot of the same thing. It's, uh, I think the hype has always been you can solve complex educational social problems by just throwing computers uh, at them or or now it's iPhones or tablets or VR, whatever it is, and that's never worked. Why are we so still willing to kind of accept this, this hype of technology being a game changer? As you say, there's so many lessons that we should have learned over the past three decades. Why do people still kind of fall for this? Well, that's a good question. Morgan Ames, uh, up at Berkeley, uh, wrote a really good book on the One Laptop Per Child program. And... Uh, she analyzes a lot of the people who have been, you know, behind this. And they tend to be, you know, upper middle class white men who grew up in very privileged conditions in mostly the United States, probably a few of them in Australia or England or Canada. And, uh, you know, they were able to teach themselves with computers. They thought they taught themselves with computers, but they started with a lot of uh, literacy skills, a lot of math skills, a lot of science skills, a father who was an engineer, a neighbor who was a computer scientist, and, you know, opportunities to go down to Hewlett Packard and that was around the corner and take some free workshops. And so, uh, and then they project this onto, onto the rest of the world. Uh, and they don't understand what it's like to be a kid in Peru who doesn't have electricity in his house and he's poor and illiterate and his family is illiterate. And, you know, what he can do when you throw a computer in his lap is a lot different. So it's all about context. I think when Bill Gates said content is king, he should have said context is king. Exactly, exactly. Context is king. But a lot of people talk about the fact that technology inherently improves learning. And I'm just really interested about what your take is on that. Is that even a question that's worth answering or researching? No. Uh, I think the best, the best metaphor in response to that was given by Chris Deedy from Harvard, who said... You know, 
computers aren't like a fire that generates warmth. So you just sit around a computer and, and you learn the way you might sit around a fire and get warm. They're more like clothes. They have to fit right. They have to be the right material. They have to be appropriate for what you're doing with them. And, uh, you know, sometimes I, I, journals do contact me and say, somebody has done a meta-analysis of technology and learning. I mean, all technology, all learning, all ages. And I say, no, I'm not going to review that paper. You know, it's worthless. I mean, if we, I mean, if we really open up technology to include uh, books, pencils, whiteboard paper, libraries, everything that's really a technology, it becomes clear how absurd that question is. Absolutely. But, but you have done a lot of research on, on language and language learning and language education. I'm really interested about what insights you've actually gained from your research there. What is it about language learning, uh, language education, that you've been able to find out in terms of how technology comes to kind of interact with what is a very complex form of learning? Thanks for asking that. That's a great question. One thing that became interesting to me early on, you know, I started this research in kind of the early to mid-1990s. And there was, uh, you know, this notion of, of computer-assisted language learning that uh, language was kind of this stable thing and the computer was something that, that ins instructed kids in. And what I realized from the very beginning, from the people I interviewed, the, and I interviewed students in a lot of different contexts, for them, it wasn't so much that technology was a way to learn this stable thing language. It's technology and language were intertwined together in ways that were really important for their lives. So technology actually was changing the way that people were using language and that it was really important for their life's purposes and goals to learn those new ways. So it was, you know, it was a whole different understanding of kind of how technology and, and literacy were, were intertwined. And I think that's, you know, been important thread that's kind of kept with me through my professional life. And this idea that language is obviously a really important part of culture and technology is a very important part of culture. And as you say, you can't really kind of separate the two together. Um, I was just going to say, I mean, technology has moved on a lot since kind of computer-aided instruction and the, and the first kind of language packages that you were looking at. And you've actually done some really interesting projects more recently on conversational agents, which is an area of technology that fascinates me. So, I mean, first of all, for the uninitiated, can you explain what a conversational agent is and how this software is trying to be used to support learning? Uh, sure. I think most people listening to this have probably used uh, Siri by Apple or Alexa by Amazon or Google Assistant, you know, on Hey Google. So those are, those are conversational agents. And uh, some of that technology for kind of real-time chatting has existed a long time, uh, but in uh, textual form. But the ability to do that with speech is what makes it a conversational agent. And that's where really the breakthroughs have happened over the last few years. And uh, 
So that's, uh, you know, for a long time I was working on things related to, to writing. Uh, but uh, as we started talking about in the beginning, you know, technology changes. And that's one thing that's exciting about it. And this whole, uh, all these developments and conversational agents have created a lot of new possibilities uh, related to speech. So going back to this idea of hype, I mean, what potential is there actually for conversational agents in the future? What do you see as the potential and what are the clear limits? I mean, to what extent should we be allowing ourselves to get excited about conversational agents? Well, let me tell you about some of the, the, the research we've done here. And I think that, that might help answer the question. Uh, one of the things about conversational agents is that It's easier to work with them in constrained environments than unconstrained environments. So uh, we know, for example, that uh, young children learn best from reading when it's shared reading with an adult. And it's kind of the same thing from kids watching television. They learn more, let's say if they're watching a science television show, if they're co-viewing with an adult who's asking them questions and things. So we took advantage of that to program conversational agents to simulate the role of a, of a reading partner or a co-viewing partner. Uh, kids would be looking at the pages of a book and uh, the, the, a smart speaker would read the, narrate the book to them and then stop and ask them questions and dialogue a little bit with them on their responses or are working with PBS Kids, which is a big public television uh, station here and a network here in the United States. And they create a lot of the really popular kids science TV shows. And uh, you might know that often in these shows, the characters like Dora the Explorer or Mickey Mouse or whoever will ask the kids a question to kind of spark their interest. Well, we're programming out those so you watch it on an iPad or a laptop and the character will ask a question, but will understand uh, the kid's response and dialogue a little bit. So because it's a constrained environment, the conversational agent is initiating the conversation, we can anticipate, and we do research on this, what kinds of responses will come up and then how to program the dialogue that will flow out of that. Uh, and we find that uh, Kids do learn about as much from those episodes uh, with a conversational agent as they do with a human. Uh, but there's some interesting differences in the conversation. Uh, if it's a simple question, they give short answers to both. If it's a complex question, they do tend to give longer answers uh, to the human. And this is with scripted conversations. You know, if it was unscripted, I mean, it's, it's certainly the case that the, the human would be able to follow up on them, take them in different directions. You know, there, there's certainly a, a great deal more flexibility. The other thing that was interesting was, uh, well, who do you think they spoke more clearly to, the human or the conversational agent? I imagine the conversational agent. Right. Somehow they were able to uh, understand that the fact that you know, they had to speak more carefully and, and they spoke more clearly. And so I guess a lot of people would see conversational agents as an example of the kind of the reduced bandwidth and the dehumanization of, of tech-based education. So in your experience, do you think there's a notable difference between talking with a conversational agent as opposed to a human? 
And if so, is any loss offset by the benefits? I mean, particularly in terms of, say, equality of opportunity. You know, the gold standard is the human. I mean, we had a very, you know, carefully scripted thread, but a, a good human partner can just lead such a richer conversation. So anybody thinks, you know, to me, it's like automated writing evaluation, which I also did research on before, which I also think uh, is useful. In fact, we had a paper with one of my graduate students. It was called, you know, automated writing evaluation, uh, the utility of a fallible tool, meaning it, of course, it's not perfect. It's very fallible, but it can still be useful. And I think a conversational agent compared to a human is very fallible, but it can be useful. And I think it's useful in a couple ways. Uh, one of the things, at least in the United States, is not all kids have equal access to uh, those kind of rich reading experiences uh, with well-trained adults. Uh, kids from low-income or working-class families, their parents might be too busy or they don't know about joint reading or they're illiterate themselves. But the other thing now that we're working on is, you know, we're not trying to replace humans. So the, our next stage of this research is to focus on going from dialogue to trialogue. How can we use conversation in situations where there's a child and a parent? On the one hand, we will ask questions of the child and hopefully model good questioning that the parent can look from, learn from. But after we've done that, then we'll ask some conversational starters for the family. Okay, now you talked about what Rosita was cooking in this story. What do you guys like to cook together? What was the last thing you cooked together? You know, what's your favorite recipe? So it's kind of trying to be the best of all worlds, not to replace humans, but to, to complement them and, and stimulate them. And there's a lot of smart pedagogical design going on in the background. And so it's not this idea that the technology is doing it for itself. Sure. That's part of the thing that we're talking about at the beginning. It, it, it's all the context. I mean, in the classroom, it's, it's the context of, of the teacher and the student. I mean, what I, one of my favorite mottos from my big research on laptops in schools was laptops will make a good school better, but they won't make a bad school good. And I think you could also say the same thing about instructional designers, you know, or technology designers or software designers. I think we're having some good luck with this because uh, we know what we're doing. We spend a lot of effort. We have experts on science learning, on literacy learning, et cetera, that are designing the conversational flows. Uh, that's the challenge that, you know, most of the people who are going to be producing this stuff are not... Uh, motivated by uh, principles of good learning, you know, they're commercially oriented. So that's, uh, we want to get involved in the AI game because uh, we know we're not going to be the only ones and we want to try to steer that in a positive direction. So there's still a role for expert educationalists, which is, is nice to hear. What my final question relates to that. You've, what you've just described there is a very kind of open ethos. And, and I'm really interested in this idea of kind of open practice. And you're the editor of AERA Open, which is a fairly bold venture at the time, I guess, from quite established organizations like AERA and SAGE. How's that going? And, and what future do you see for education, publishing and research in this era of open access and post-publication review and everything else? 
Well, we're just uh, stepping down after six years. So it's actually a good time to, to take stock uh, of where we've been. Uh, and, and we've been pretty successful. Uh, you know, we've published about 450 articles over the six years. Uh, you know, we've got good metrics in terms of, you know, impact factor and all that. Uh, we were selected as the best new journal in the social sciences by a, an organization here in the U.S., uh, but it's the, the open parts of it that I'm most proud of. Uh, our articles were downloaded nearly a half a million times in uh, 2020, which is for something that's trying to have an impact on education, you know, I think it is, is really valuable. Uh, we've really pushed hard on this idea of data sharing. A lot of people, you know, it's not part of the ethos in education, and, and sometimes for good reason. I mean, there's a lot of privacy issue. We're collecting data from schools, you know, which, which may not be excited about it. Uh, but if you de-identify data, if you anonymize data, if you set it up, you know, early on in terms of uh, the ways that you get permission and things, it can be done. And so uh, we have uh, set up resources for people on how to share their data. And we've been, you know, very good in the communication about the desirability of that. We haven't yet required it, but just by strongly encouraging it, uh, three quarters of all our authors have published their data, which I think is, is a great breakthrough. So I think uh, the other thing, because we're online only, not in print, you know, I go to the AERA journal meetings and I see a lot of the other journals are, are obsessed with, you know, we have, we have so many issue, articles in each issue, and so we can only publish so many articles a year. So they're looking to take you know, the, net, the, the only articles that have positive effects, or only articles with significant effects, or only articles on, oh, this is going to be an exciting topic for our reader. We're trying to, to break that mold and, and more use of a criterion reference. Was this a rigorous educational research? If so, it will be published. Now, now where we go from here? You know, I mean, we're only one-tenth of the way there. Uh, our author fees are low, but we still have author fees, which I regret. You know, how do we find a way to break the stranglehold of the big publishers and have open access without depending on the authors? Uh, how do we... Uh, the review process is getting, you know, more and more time-consuming and laden and complex. Uh, you mentioned the possibility of post-publication review. I mean, there's a, a lot of, imagine that the whole journal system that we have right now didn't exist and we were kind of starting from scratch. I don't think we would come up with what we have now. So where it goes and how we get there, I don't have all the answers, but I look forward to being part of those discussions. No, and massive congratulations for kind of getting it all off the ground. It's, it's a really, really brilliant venture. Well, Mark, thanks ever so much for taking time to talk about your work. It's genuinely fascinating. It's been brilliant to actually kind of see you face to face in a way. Um, I look forward to seeing all your work in the future. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much.